Sean. Uh, it's been a long time since Dr. Sean Cole was on. I mean, Dr. Sean Cole hasn't been on. I think the last time he was on is 20, I want to say 2019, I think. It's been a while. It's been a long while since Dr. Sean Cole. Dr. Sean Cole, I think when God's Truth was first coming on, was first trying to come up on YouTube, Dr. Sean Cole was on there. You know, he was one of the first faces in a debate format on the gospel truth. So it's always great to have guys come back. And Andrew Griffin, um, if you didn't, if you guys know, he's been on a lot of times as well. He too was one of the first faces to pop up on a debate platform on this channel, debating ring on this channel. And so I'm grateful for both of these guys for coming on and let me bring these guys in so they can further introduce themselves to you guys. How y'all doing? Doing great. Awesome, awesome. How you doing, Andrew? Doing good. Doing good. Excellent, excellent. Glad you guys joined me, man. We're gonna have a fun debate today, a fun topic, and this is always a fun one. Whenever you get Trinitarians and non-Trinitarians, Unitarians or oneness together, this topic is gonna to be fun topic to, to, to discuss. The topic is, is Jesus God a New Testament? We're gonna have fun, but before we get into it, I do wanna give you guys a chance to introduce yourselves to the audience. Tell them what you do, where you're from, blogs, YouTube, ministries, whatever it is you do, let them know. Start with Dr. Sean Cole, if you don't mind, give a quick introduction to yourself. Yeah, I'm Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I've been here a little over 18 years, and so we're excited to see what God continues to do out here in northeastern Colorado. I have a degree in expository preaching from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm an instructor of Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Colorado Christian University. I've written two books, Your Identity and the Trinity was the first book that came out in 2019. And then earlier this year, uh, G3 Press released my book, 40 Days in Philippians, which is basically a, a devotional guide going expositionally through the book of Philippians. And so that's me in a nutshell, and I'm excited to be here tonight. All right. Thank you once again, Dr. Sean. Appreciate you. All right, Andrew, you, you're in the seat now. Go ahead. Go ahead. Quick introduction yourself. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. My name is Andrew Griffin from Unitarian Apologetics. Uh, I have a small YouTube channel called Unitarian Apologetics, uh, where I create videos uh, exegeting uh, hermeneutically uh, various topics. I have a video I recommend you go see, which is uh, the meta narrative of the Bible, part one. And I'm also doing a, a series on the Gospel of John and also have a 30 minute video exegeting Philippians 2, 6 through 11. All right, all right. Thank you guys once again. Appreciate the introductions. So now we are going to jump into this. Once again, the topic of this debate is, is Jesus God in the New Testament? Dr. Sean Cole, you're arguing the affirmative. Andrew, you're arguing the negative. And we are going to start that with 10-minute opening statements followed by five-minute rebuttals. That's going to be a 40-minute cross-sex, both of you. Then we're going to follow a 40-minute cross-sex. Both of you get 20 minutes to leave with questions. And I have maybe a twinge of more open discussion there, but for the most part, it'd be a formal uh, formal cross-sex. And then we're gonna have a five-minute closing, and then we have a 30-minute Q&A from the audience. Sounds good? Sounds good. All right, also remember, once you guys get to the one-minute mark, you guys open the statements and your closings and your rebuttals, you're gonna hear this chime. That'll let you know you have one minute left in your presentation, so begin to start wrapping it up, all right? And that, that, with that said, Dr. Chanko, you're arguing the affirmative this debate, so you'll be up first for your opening statement. And the clock will be in your upper left-hand corner on the main screen. 
the screen that showed all of us uh, just a minute ago now just showing you it's a uh, it should be in the upper left hand corner so if you need to uh, reference that time it'll be there for you all right and uh okay. with that said i'll start your time when you begin to speak okay Again, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this, and I'm going to be arguing the uh, positive affirmation that the New Testament does emphatically teach that Jesus is God. And I want to begin by a quote from Louis Burkhoff, the great Reformed theologian, who basically states this, The proof of the deity of Christ is so abundant that no one who accepts the Bible as the infallible Word of God can entertain any doubt on this point. And so what I want to do is I want to briefly examine four essential truths that emerge directly from the New Testament. I won't have time to go into the exegesis of each of these. These are mainly just big picture items, but I want to just state these truths, and then we can maybe dialogue or have some cross-examination on these as we get more into the exegesis. But here's truth number one. Um, John's prologue teaches that Jesus has always existed as the eternal Son of God, sharing full deity with the Father. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, one of the things I want to just bring out, first of all, is the, the use of the verb that John uses there with the Greek verb was. It's in the imperfect tense, which means continual action in the past. So literally, it could be translated as Jesus has always existed. In other words, it assumes by the way that that Greek verb is used that he is the eternal son of God who has no beginning, was not created, has always existed. And then there's that preposition with God, the Greek preposition pros, which conveys a close proximity, the idea of coexistence, face-to-face -face communion with God the Father. And John could have used an adjective to describe Jesus as merely divine in the Greek language. There is a, an adjective for that. You find that adjective, for example, in 2 Peter 1.3, where it talks about his divine power. John could have said that Jesus was divine, but instead he uses the, the noun God. And so truth number one, and we can come back to this, is that the prologue of John teaches that Jesus is, in fact, God, eternally existing as the Son. Truth number two, and this is, I think, one of the most important ones, is that Jesus himself consciously identifies himself as the I Am, thus affirming his deity as God. And this goes back to the Old Testament when Yahweh, the Lord, showed up to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered through all generations. And so when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he purposely uses that I am statement seven times to equate himself with Yahweh, the I am that was revealed in the Old Testament. For example, um, in the first I am statement, when Jesus uh, performs the miracle of feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, 33 through 35, uh, Jesus said, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am 
the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus uses, and, and actually John records it for us in the Greek text, the statement, ego I me. Ego I me, which literally means I myself am. And it's very important that Jesus uses that expression, ego I me, because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's exactly how that Exodus 3.14 passage is translated in the Septuagint. When God said to Moses, I am who I am, it is that ego I me expression. And so Jesus purposely uses that same language in the Greek new uh, translation of the Old Testament to, to show that he is indeed Yahweh God. You also have other passages where Jesus says in John 8, 56 through 59, uh, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus was equating himself to be God. And so all throughout the Gospel of John, he uses this ego I me statement, hearkening back to the burning bush, equating himself with the great I am. It's interesting, too, when Jesus was arrested um, in John 18, when Judas comes to betray him, and basically um, they said, who, who are you looking for? And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And literally, Jesus says there, ego I me, I am. And just by him saying that I am, the Roman soldiers fall back. And so all throughout John's gospel, these I am statements, Jesus is purposely equating himself to be fully God in the flesh. Truth number three, Thomas's confession of Jesus as Lord attests to his full deity. Um, in John 20, 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Um, Thomas makes this profound confession that Jesus is God. And notice that Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, now, Thomas, that's, that's going too far. Only God the Father's God. You're making me equal with God. Don't do that. I'm, I'm just an exalted man. I'm a created being. Don't, don't call me God. No, Jesus doesn't correct Thomas, but he assumes that that name, that title of my Lord and my God. And then the fourth truth that I want to affirm is just the epistles affirm the full deity of Christ. And so let me just give you a few passages of Scripture from the New Testament that equate Jesus with being God. Uh, Romans 9, 5, to him belong the patriarchs, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Titus 2 talks about Jesus being our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You also have in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You have Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, uh, servant Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then probably one of the most profound ones is 1 John 5.20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. And so, besides the plain teaching of Scripture in the New Testament, the Orthodox Church has confessed 
the full deity of Christ in the creeds and confessions. The Nicene Creed confesses that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The Chalcedonian Creed says that he's truly God and truly man. The Athanasian Creed says the Son is eternal. The Son is almighty. The Son is God. Um, 1689, Second London Baptist Confession, which is the confession that I hold to as a Reformed Baptist in chapter 8 on Christ the Mediator, Paragraph 2 says, The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He's the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. And so I could go into more detail on these four truths, but number one, the prologue of John. Number two, the I Am statements. Number three, Thomas's confession. And number four, just a numerous spattering of New Testament texts that explicitly teach that Jesus is God. And if that weren't enough, we also have the testimony of the historic Orthodox Church from the very beginning in the creeds and confessions that have affirmed the full deity of Jesus as being absolutely God. And so those are the four arguments, the four proofs I would like to give in the affirmative. And um, at that, I yield my time. And I look forward to more discussion on this topic as we move forward. All right. All right. Thank you so much for that opening statement. All right, Andrew, you're up next in your opening presentation. And I, once again, will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Awesome. And it's, um, I'm going to try for the first time to share a PowerPoint on here. Uh, right. Can you tell me, can you see that? Yes, you can. If you want to put it in presentation mode, Andrew, it'd be a lot bigger. All right. Is that good? Uh, it looked like it's still in editing mode. Let's see. Let's do this. How about that? Is that better? There you go. Yep, that's much better right there. Sweet. All right. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. <clears throat> so I'm going to likewise build my presentation on four foundational premises. Um, that I believe are, uh, some of them are important that we agree on uh, before uh, we'll actually have any uh, productive conversation. Uh, the first premise um, for my, for my uh, position that we will need to agree on is that God never equals more than one person in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is that anytime we see God, it never refers to more than one person at a time. And this is noted by Murray Harris in his book, Jesus as God in the New Testament, which lists the handful of times where Jesus is given this title, God. And he says it would be inappropriate for Elohim or Yahweh ever to refer to the Trinity in the Old Testament 
when in the New Testament, Theos regularly refers to the Father alone and apparently never to the Trinity. And so I bring this up in our discussion about the New Testament to show that when we see this title God, we sh unless it is ex we can show explicitly that it refers to someone other than the Father, we should have the Father in mind. And this, this title God never refers to a trinity. And this has far-reaching implications. Um, for instance, in Genesis 1-1, when we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This would mean that this can only refer to one person and not a trinity. Therefore, we could say something like, in the beginning, the Father created the heavens and the earth. And the... And also when we read in the Old Testament about new uh, about messianic prophecies and we see that God is going to send and raise up someone that is the father alone who is one person who does that as well. And then in turn in the New Testament, only one person is Jesus is God. And so we can maintain fluidity from Old Testament to New Testament. And this is a foundational premise that we will need to agree on. Or Dr. Sean will have the burden of showing that there are indeed texts which refer to a trinity when we see the title God. The second foundational premise which we should agree on is that God is a generic title which can refer to human beings or the Lord God, Yahweh. Uh, so... Being so that being called God doesn't necessarily equate to someone being God Yahweh. And we see some examples of this in the New Testament and Old Testament. We, uh, of course, Psalm 45, 6 here is quoted in the New Testament as well. Uh, in John 10, 34, it says Jesus is speaking to the religious authorities and he tells them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. In Psalm 45, 6, quoted in the book of Hebrews, the psalmist depicts God himself saying to the human Messiah, your throne, O God, endures forever. And we see Satan is called God, uh, the God of the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. So again, being called God does not necessarily equate with someone being the Lord God, Yahweh. Also, another foundational premise we will have to agree on is how we define God. Because it could be that Dr. Sean has formulated an idea about certain qualities that God possesses. And then he looks in the New Testament and sees that Jesus has these qualities. And so he's convinced in his mind that Jesus is God. And likewise, I could formulate... Uh, in my mind, a set of qualities that one must possess in order to correctly be identified as God, look in the Bible and show that Jesus does not possess these qualities. And so the, for the sake of time and simplicity, I'm going to present what I believe are insurmountable obstacles for the case that Jesus is God in the sense that he's the Lord God Yahweh by showing that there are certain intrinsic qualities that a being must possess in order to be correctly identified as God, 
and then showing in the Bible that Jesus does not possess those qualities. The first quality is supreme power. God is supremely powerful. There's not a single place in the Bible where Jesus has power equal to God. Yet clearly and abundantly we see God as being more powerful than Jesus. And so no matter how you interpret, whether it is uh, you interpret pre-existence as being literal or even as a man or even now or ever, do we see Jesus having power that's equal to God and being God? One of the qualities to be correctly identified as God means that you have supreme power. The second quality that God possesses, according to the Bible, is that God is invisible. For instance, we read in 1 Timothy 6, 16, that he alone is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him nor can anyone see him. In John 1.18, this, this theme is continued. It says, no one has ever seen God. And again, according to premise one, God there must only refer to one person. And 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God at any time. In Colossians 1.15, we read that God is explicitly called the invisible God. And so leading to Premise four, Jesus represents God. Jesus is an agent who acts on behalf of God. For instance, we see in this verse here, Colossians 1.15, it says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So there's three implications from what is said here. The first is that there is a being known as the invisible God. Notice it does not say the invisible person. The second implication is that Jesus is not the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the means through which the invisible God is seen. So Jesus does not possess supreme power and Jesus is also not invisible. And we also see in this continued, this theme continued in Hebrews 1.3, where Jesus is said to be the radiance of God's glory. Again, God has to be one person there. And it says the exact expression or character of God's substance. And when we go to the BDAG, we see for this word character, for exact expression, it says produced as a representation or a reproduction. So Jesus is how the invisible God is known. Also, Jesus says in the Gospel of John at least 24 times in this Gospel alone that he was sent by God. Even in English, in the English language, this word send means cause to go, order or instruct someone to go to a particular destination. And so to be sent implies that you are subordinate. We see other instances of 
agency in the Bible here as well. Just four foundational premises, though. The title God never refers to more than one person at a time. God is a generic title given to human beings as well as the Lord God Yahweh. We must define and agree on what we mean by God. And Jesus represents God. He is an agent who acts on behalf of God. Was that the one minute timer or the I'm all done yeah. timer? Yeah, that was the one minute timer. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, that's OK. That. We can stop there. That's fine. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, Dr. Sean, you are back in the seat for your five minute rebuttal. And let me get your time up here. Make sure we get that set up. All right, I'll start your time when you begin to speak, Dr. Shaw. Yeah, I want to address, I guess, the um, the issue of, of God being uh, Jesus. I guess I guess I want to address number three, that um, Jesus does not have the equal power of God. What I would like to do is, and if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to just pull it up here real quick. If you go to Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, uh, Revelation, pull it up here. Revelation chapter 4 shows that God the Father in the throne room. I mean, let me just open this up real quick so I can. Yeah, so um, in Revelation chapter f 4, you have the brilliant throne room of God, the Father, who dwells in unapproachable light. He is the, um, the God who's on his throne. He's surrounded by four living creatures. There's a rainbow of living color. There's the crystal sea. There's the, he's, the, he's the invisible God, God the Father. And then in Revelation chapter 5, you have Jesus as the Lamb of God, who's the one mediator, who's able to take the scroll out of the hand of the Father. He's the only one worthy to open that scroll because he was slain. And if you go to the end, let me open this up here real quick. I got to find it on my computer. If you go to the end of Revelation chapter 5, actually, let me just get my actual Bible out here because I can't find it on my computer with all these things open. If you go to, to, the, to Revelation chapter 5, there's a hymn of praise to God the Father and to Jesus the Son as the Lamb. And it says there at the end of chapter 5, um, verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus. So that's two distinct persons that are both given the same hymn of praise, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So John is recording this vision to where the entire creation is singing a hymn of praise to God the Father, who's on the throne, the invisible God, and Jesus, the crucified and risen Lamb. And he is showing us that all creation is, is attributing to both the Father and the Son, blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. And so that one verse right there shows that both the Father and the Son in heaven are both worshipped equally as having the same glory and might and power. And so to say that um, Jesus is not as powerful or that God has to be invisible in order to truly be God. Well, yes, God the Father is invisible, 
Jesus the Son is the visible expression of the invisible God. What's, that's what those passages in Colossians where it talks about um, Colossians 1.15, he's the image. That, that idea of icon is the Greek word. Um, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says he's the, the image uh, or the radiance and the exact imprint of his nature. It's interesting because if you look at Hebrews 1, 3, where it says he's the radiance of the glory of God, that term radiance appears nowhere else in the Bible. And it means an effulgence or a shining forth. It's interesting. The moon does not give off light. It reflects the sun. The sun is the source of the light. Jesus does not merely reflect the glory of God the way that the moon reflects the brightness of the sun. The way that Greek term is used is that Jesus is the actual source of that glory. He's the shining forth. He is, he is equal with God in the fact that he shines forth that glory. Um, he's the effulgence of that. And the, the term exact imprint was used for coins where a mark or a stamp was issued to mark its identity. So what it's saying there is Jesus is the radiant, outflowing, visible, and physical expression of an invisible God. So just because God the Father is invisible does not necessarily mean that Jesus the Son, who is come in the flesh, has to be invisible to, 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 in order for him to be God. And also that Revelation passage teaches that both God the Father and Jesus the Son, two distinct persons, are worshipped equally in glory and in power and in eternality um, in the book of Revelation. And so that would be a really quick, I felt like that was a, that was a, a turbo answer to some of those questions, but it uh, looks like I got 10 seconds left, so I will, I will stop there. All right, thank you, Dr. Sean, for that rebuttal. All right, Andrew, you're up for your five-minute rebuttal, and I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. All right, thank you. All right, so I'm going to address these in order, uh, his uh, four points in order. So when we're speaking about John's prologue, it's often assumed that when we read in the beginning with the logos, that we're speaking about the sun. And so I have no problem with the eternality of the logos. In fact, that is John's point is because the contrast in the Gospel of John and in the prologue here is is the contrast between the revelation the immutable eternal revelation which became manifest in jesus and the temporal revelation which was the law of moses we see in the wisdom tradition that wisdom is with god wisdom was there before god created anything so wisdom is also eternal and uh, wisdom is also in pro uh, close uh, proximity uh, with God. And actually that word, it, it can have definitely the meaning of, uh, and, and I, and I agree it has the meaning of close proximity, but also has the, the meaning of towards. And so the logos directs us towards God. Um, but there's a poetic element that has to be grasped within the book, uh, which depends on how we understand Genesis and also how we, uh, have uh, how we understand the, the cultural context in which the Gospel of John was written. Uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to talking about that. Uh, we see the I am statements. Um, when we come across these handful of ambiguous uh, texts and, and sayings of Jesus, we should never use that as a license to dismiss everything uh, 
that we've read plainly and explicitly. And it doesn't exactly line up when we see, for instance, Jesus being called the true bread when we read, when we back up and we see the, these other things Jesus is saying about this, this person who sent him, this God, who, who he calls his God, who he calls his father, who he's uh, subordinate to. And when, when he says about this bread, that it was actually the father who gave the true bread. And so that's interesting. Uh, dynamic again shows that the father is in control of everything. Um, John 20, 28. Um, my view is that this is a polemic against an emperor uh, uh, in this uh, Domitian, who was the emperor around the time that the Gospel of John was written. Um, and again, this goes back to my second point that just because someone is referred to as as God, does not mean that they should that we should automatically equate this with that person being the Lord God Yahweh. We can't use that as a license to dismiss the explicit and clear and abundant amount of scriptures which refer to to God uh, in the way that He is the the Almighty. He is the supreme God in the Gospel of John. He's the only true God, and so we end up with contradictory ideas there, um, and also so. Concerning uh, these these various texts, uh, I hope that we can get into them. I'm not sure we have enough time to get into all of them, um, but all of these texts are addressed in Murray Harris's book, Jesus as God in the New Testament, where he's given this uh, title, God. Uh, concerning Romans nine five, um, it's an interesting thing when we see to to those uh, the people of Israel, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is Christ according to the flesh, who is God over overall. Um, it would be an interesting thing to talk about God becoming uh, from the Israelites. Um, but again, if, if, uh, if we understand it, that he can be given this generic title, God, it's not really a problem and we can maintain fluidity. Uh, 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 Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 are, are sort of similar uses. Um, but we see in the New International Commentary on these verses that the, the language of grace and salvation, appearance or epiphany, and the title Great God and Savior all figure into the discourse that surrounded the imperial cults, where essentially these emperors were given these names, God and Savior, yet they were never confused with the gods who they represented. And, and Murray Harris also on 1 John 5.20 disagrees that the true God there should refer to Jesus and says instead it should refer back to the Father. All right, all right. All right, guys, thank you so much for the opening and rebuttals. And so now we're going to jump into the cross X. Once again, this will be a 40 minute cross X. Both of you get 20 minutes each to ask questions. And so uh, that said, Doctor, uh, before you go into it, make sure if you can answer the question with a simple yes or no, please do that because you don't want to bog your opponent's time down. And I know sometimes there's a sort of a, 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 a lead up to the question. So let's not that lead up be too long and uh, slow down the conversation. All right. That said, Dr. Sean Cole, you're up first for your 20 minute cross sex, Andrew. Okay. Um, Andrew, thank you for your, um, your time and your explanation. I, I guess I want to start with a fundamental question. And I think you, in our pre-debate discussions, you said that you affirmed inerrancies. I just want to ask it on the record. Do you affirm the inerrancy of scripture? Um, I, I mean, it's, I'm not an expert on the subject, so maybe you can clarify. Um, do you mean that, you know, like, for instance, 
there could be, uh, you know, five loaves of bread here, four loaves of bread there or something, or, um, or do you mean essentially that the, the, the overall message of the Bible does not contradict? What do you mean by inerrancy exactly? Well, I would define inerrancy as Second Timothy 3.16, that all scripture, the written scripture is theonustos, meaning it is God breathed, and that every single word, every single grammatical uh, expression down to the jot and tittle is absolutely true, exactly how God wanted it to be written, preserved from error, and that there are no contradictions, there are no errors in the original manuscripts, and that it is God-breathed word. Um, and the reason I asked you that question is because you made a statement that you thought the I am statements that Jesus, you, it, it, it may be correct me, you said those were ambiguous statements. Please define what you mean by a direct statement from Jesus as being ambiguous. Well, uh, the Gospel of John itself is, is, is quite an enigmatic book. I hope you would agree with that. Um, uh, wouldn't agree scholars who you wouldn't agree with that was well, well, most scholars who, who, who actually study the book, um, would say that it's, that it's it, it's sort of, uh, um, you know, even church, early church fathers referred to it as a spiritual gospel, which says it's not something that's so plain forward. Um, but, but can, maybe you can clarify on, on what you're trying to find out. Well, I don't think John is an enigmatic book. I mean, I spent three years well, preaching I, through the gospel. When Jesus says, you know, you should eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's, that right. seems that, pretty that's, enigmatic. Yeah. Well, okay, that, that's symbolic metaphorical language <clears throat> that can be understood in the context. But mm -hmm. I guess I'm concerned when Jesus directly says, I am, ego, I, me, tying back to Exodus 3.14, mm -hmm. I am the bread of life. Now, obviously, that's a metaphorical statement. Jesus isn't literally a loaf of bread. And so maybe mm. when, maybe ambiguous, you're, maybe you're meaning metaphorical. I guess, do, do you literally believe Jesus said that? Or um, because it makes it sound like you're dismissing the I am statements as confusing or okay, not yeah. authoritative. Or, I so guess I do I believe, yeah. Well, I, I believe that the Bible is, is the inspired word of God, yes. Um, I, I believe these, uh, sometimes there's textual problems where manuscripts might be a little bit different. We do have the addition of the, the, the lady who was caught in adultery and John who is admitted that that's added later. So, but um, I don't, I don't see how you're tying Exodus 314 with the true bread. Uh, the theme of the, the, of the bread was a sustenance, which God provided to people during the Exodus. And so, so God was not the bread and God sent the bread. So one person sent the bread um, who was who we could identify as the God and father of Jesus. Um, so God was not the bread. And in and, and the Exodus 314, if I'm not mistaken, says, um, ego in me, o on. So I am he who is not simply I am. Most people agree that that the I am statements are uh, taken from uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, where God is talking about being being a savior, but all throughout that book, one person who's speaking saying, "I'm going to raise up my servant David. I'm going to send you the Messiah." How I explain that, uh, Jesus saying that, I, I do get that it's it's quite a provocative thing to say, um, but I, I see it as Jesus. Uh, number one, we got to look at 
the things that Jesus has been saying about himself throughout the whole book. He's been saying he's the Christ. He's been saying that he's subordinate to God. He's been saying that he has a God. Um, and, and, um, and I think that Jesus, uh, so something that culturally that's kind of often misunderstood or just, uh, uh, is that the, the king and the Messiah, and, and this is something that Jesus says explicitly in the book as well, is that he imitates God. Um, and we see this in Revelation where God's called the Alpha and Omega. Now Jesus is called the Alpha and Omega um, because in, Jesus is, is that within uh, the realm which he represents. Um, and and, and the, the meaning of it is that he's saying, I am the source of salvation um, in contrast with the law of Moses and in contrast with being born of the flesh of Abraham. He's a, so overall, throughout the whole book, he's identifying himself as the Messiah, as the Savior sent by God. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I, would, I would agree with that. But I think that the I am that he's stating there, he's purposely using that to equate himself with Yahweh in Exodus 3.14. And another question I would have I, I, for you is you keep... You, go ahead. No, no, you're fine. Go ahead. No, go ahead. If you if you need to respond, go ahead. Yeah, you know, well, I don't I don't think most most scholars when I when I read about this don't don't think that uh, Exodus three fourteen is the source of these I am statements. It's it's it, most of them uh, say that it's from actually from the the book of Isaiah. Yeah. Right, but it's the same expression. Mm -hmm. I am the Lord. That is my name. I give my glory. Well, he to says. My... Well, he says I am He who is. And, and so even when we go to uh, the book of Revelation, uh, only the Father is he who is and was and is to be, uh, the Almighty. Uh, that's that's only only one person. And again, when we go to Exodus 3.14, if we see one person revealing and saying, I am God, uh, unless you agree or disagree with premise one of my, of, of my argument, that can only be one person. And so... Uh, Okay, so in Revelation, you just said that only the Father is the one who was and is and is to come. That's correct. But Revelation then, eight, okay. one eight, uh, people will say. Uh, I mean, people try to try to equate that with Jesus, but when we look back, we see only one person referred to. Uh, that, okay, that's but, a reference but so, to the Father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Revelation one verse eight, Jesus is mm -hmm. speaking. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and who is to come, no. the Almighty. You don't see that as Jesus. That That's not Jesus. No, because when we back up, we see uh, in verse 4, grace and peace to you from him, that's one person, who is and was and is to come. Here he says, and from the seven spirits before his throne, that one person, and from Jesus Christ. So we can right. back up and we can under, we can see that. This is, yeah, no, yeah, scholars will generally agree that verse one, uh, but that one eight is the Father speaking. Okay, but, all right, so the Father is speaking, but do you see the Trinity in that verse? Do you see Jesus Christ? Verse? Do you see the Holy Spirit? And do you see the Father in verses four and five of Revelation chapter one? Uh, no, you I see don't. Three distinct uh, because, yes, absolutely, yes. Well, no, I don't see persons because seven spirits is 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 uh, you know, is uh, could could refer to angels, but people like to say it's the sevenfold spirit of God. I don't think the Holy Spirit is a person, uh, 
but I do see them as three distinct uh, beings. So you don't, so when in John 14, when Jesus said, I will send another helper and he mm -hmm. will be with you and yeah. he will be in you, you don't see mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit as a he, as a person, as a divine person. I know this is talking about Jesus, but it's related together yeah, as no, no, about the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. Because okay. it, I think Jesus uses that language here, but the overwhelming majority of scripture we see the spirit referred to as an it. For instance, when we see the Holy Spirit, which descended upon Jesus and it rested upon him. So the overwhelming majority in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit is not a person. And there are times where it's uh, somewhat ambiguous, but that, that might be a different debate for a different day. That's that's a different. We're getting off. We're getting off topic there. I guess another question I would have for you, because you keep using the word subordinate. What is your understanding? And, and, and if you're not a Trinitarian, maybe you're, you don't have this understanding. But what, how would you understand the difference between the ontological nature of Jesus and the economic function of Jesus um, as a servant come in the flesh? Well, that's a question I have for you, too. But uh, so. So, well, a lot of times we, 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 we hear about the ontological nature of God. And I think rarely do we stop to ask what exactly that is and what exactly that means. And so um, it, it's, it's, it's a, a multifaceted uh, a thing to, to describe. But uh, when I talk about subordination, I mean that that when I'm just talking about power in general, and it can never be shown in the, the New Testament where Jesus has power equal to God. Um, so, so, but when we talk about natures and qualities and things like this, well, that to me, how I understand natures is the qualities that they possess. Uh, for instance, it's not alone, it's not enough alone to be, uh, uh, you know, eternal. Uh, these, the, the, the being, uh, the nature of the being uh, is, is understood by its qualities, if that makes sense. And so you have uh, qualities such as supreme power, supreme intelligence. Uh, the, the, the quality of God is that, um, it, for instance, he's always existed. Um, and so I, I, does that help? So how would you understand that Revelation 5 passage where all creation is giving praise to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And they're, they're equal. They're getting equal praise of power and glory and, and dominion. Do you not see that as equal power and no. worship? Two distinct. No, this, and this, that is, are, that and this is, oh, sorry. No, no um, because we can go back to verses like first Chronicles 29, 20, um, and, and see that David said to the whole assembly, bless Yahweh, your God. And so they're only told to bless Yahweh. So the whole assembly blessed Yahweh, the God of their fathers. They bowed down. So they worshiped and paid homage to Yahweh and to the king. Um, and uh, Margaret Barker notes that um, there's one verb there, but two direct objects for Yahweh and to the human king. And and so, uh, so they're worshiping, actually, they're worshiping, the Lord God Yahweh and the human king in the same action. So you see Jesus as a human king, not as an eternal son. 
Correct. Yes. He's an exalted human being. Okay. So when did Jesus come into existence? In his mother's womb. Okay. So how do you take John 1, 1, that the Logos has always been? Well, number one, it doesn't say that Jesus has always been. I think that's something that has to be read into the text. Um, it says in the beginning was the Logos. And so it's more important to understand what the Logos is and how it was understood and, and what's being said about the Logos there. Would you be willing to so elucidate would, on that? Tell us what you believe yeah, about the logo. Yeah, so 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 imagine let's go all the way back to before creation happened. And let's imagine that no cosmos exists and there's just God. And so the idea of following Proverbs 8 is that before God brought creation into order, God first developed a blueprint. And or a plan through which he created everything, a, a blueprint, essentially, so that everything that was brought into function was brought uh, in, in accordance to this plan. For instance, if you have a building before the build, uh, builder builds, the architect builds a building, he first develops a blueprint. And um, and so uh, you have the logo. So, so so this ties into the fact that God can't be seen. And so if I asked you show me God. Um, you couldn't do it. Um, what, what, we, what we could do as Christians is we could say, well, look at the order of the universe. Look at the, look at the delicacy of life. Look how everything's put into perfect balance. Look at our DNA. Um, and we can see that there's order. And that's how we understand God. And so in some sense, you know, it's interesting because you bring the, the contrast between the sun and the rays of the sun. And that's how this was understood and uh, articulated by Philo as well is that you can't see the sun, but you can see the, the halo around the sun. And the same way is that we can't see God, which in the Gospel of John means to comprehend him, but we can understand God through the logos. And so this God being understood became to be uh, manifest in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus continues to make uh, only, only his God and Father known. So you mentioned Philo. Would you consider mm -hmm. Philo to be a Christian source of understanding the New Testament? Um, well, I don't think that he was a Christian. I think that he uh, predated the Bible and that I do believe he influenced uh, not only the Gospel of John, but the book of Hebrews as well. And also, it's interesting that the only reason his works survive is because church early church fathers were fascinated with him, cited him, and, and were inspired by his works and even copy and emulate his works. And so it's not that they're Christian Christian exactly. Um, he was more of a, a more of, of a Jewish philosopher, which uh, helps us get into the mind of these uh, the original Christian authors. So let's go back to Thomas's confession of Jesus as my Lord and my God. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that that was in the context of Domitian being the emperor, and that was on the coins. And, mm -hmm. and I would agree with you that in the cultural context, the Romans, he demanded to be called my Lord and my God. And so there is a context to mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. So why would Jesus not stop Thomas and say, don't, don't you dare call me God? I'm not God. Why, why didn't Jesus stop Thomas? Why did Jesus receive the worship? 
why did how do you understand that passage i think it's just a i think it's a polemical statement against the emperor and um the the question i would ask myself is why why would thomas all of a sudden flip the script out of everything that jesus has said all of a sudden jesus resurrects from the dead as, as great as it was but he that's the only thing he did there and then all of a sudden thomas thinks that he's that he's the lord god almighty i think the contrast is because emperors were believed to have eternal life and, and the difference is that jesus actually did overcome and so this is a provide uh, uh, a polemic statement uh that that's meant to provoke so you're saying uh, so you're saying that are you saying Thomas made the polemic statement in the context of addressing Jesus or John records Thomas a statement and meant it to mm. be polemic to his original audience? That's, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, that's a good question. Um, it, it's tough to say. If I say that John just wrote it, then then I, all of a sudden I don't think the Bible is inspired. If I say that Jesus said it, uh, I think it doesn't, it doesn't matter in the sense that it cannot be be used to change the overwhelming abundance of clear evidence we have in the Bible. So when you said Thomas flipped the script, let's think about this. Thomas was a Jewish man that grew up in the synagogue reciting the Shema, mm -hmm. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your mm -hmm. whole heart, soul, mind. He, he, yeah. he knew that. He had seen Jesus in the flesh. He'd seen Jesus eat. He had seen there was no question that he understood Jesus was a man. But then when he put his hands in those nail scars, mm -hmm. his eyes were open to the fact that Jesus is not just Lord, but God. And so you have a Jewish man that's actually steeped in that Shema theology of one God equating Jesus with being God. How would you answer that? I don't think he's equating him with being the Lord God Yahweh. Again, this is a, I think it's a polemical statement against the emperor. And, and, the, and the, the question I would ask myself again is why, why would, because Thomas put his hands through the, these holes of Jesus, what, what about that says, well, that's definitely the Lord God Almighty. I mean, I, I know so, I can't ask you questions. That's what I would ask myself. Yeah. Sure, sure. And, and I, don't, I don't intend for this question to be ad hominem at all, but I want to ask it in, in the sense of historical context. Because based mm -hmm. upon what you've said, would you consider yourself an Aryan or in the line of, no. of Aryanism? No, I think Aryans are the worst. I think they created all the problems in, in, in Christianity today. I, I love the Logos. I love the Trinity as I think it's originally understood by philosophers that the Father is not the, the Logos, is not the Holy Spirit, yet all of these share a divine nature. So say that again. But How I, would you define the Trinity? I would I would define the Trinity, and it's interesting because I was talking to a I went I had a, the privilege of going to a monastery and I was speaking with this uh, this monastic monk over there and and I was explaining to him how I understand the Trinity and we really just kind of walked away agreeing and appreciation of each other. But the Father is not the Logos, is not the Holy Spirit, but all three share a divine eternal nature. Uh, the difference with mine in, in traditional Trinitarianism is that the Logos is not a person and neither is the Holy Spirit. So it's not three distinct persons. It's one God with two different emanations of that God. Would you use the word that's, emanations? That's, yep. 
Yes. But would you be more of a modal, would you be more of a modalist? No, because no, because Jesus is not that one God. All right. Uh, in a that's, sense, you know, that's yeah. time right there. All right, Andrew, okay. uh, you are up for your tournament across six or Doctor Sean. Awesome. All right. Um, so uh, back to these uh, foundational premises. I think it's a good place to start. Um, uh, uh, Murray Harris says in his book, Jesus is God, that it would be inappropriate for Elohim or Yahweh to ever refer to the Trinity in the Old Testament, when in the New Testament, Theos regularly refers to the Father alone and apparently never to the Trinity. Uh, do you agree with Murray Harris there? Um, that, for instance, when we read, um, anytime we read God, unless it can be uh, explicitly identified to be uh, another person uh, that we should have the father in mind did no. you or do you know any do you know any do you know any verses in in the in the New Testament where God equals Trinity I would say that when you see the term theos it does not necessarily mean the father because Jesus shares full deity with the father the Holy Spirit is God Jesus is God the father is God and so just because you see the term theos, you don't necessarily automatically assume it's the Father. The context has to determine and the antecedent words that are used. And so a lot of those New Testament passages that I gave from the epistles especially, the antecedent is Jesus Christ, Savior and God. And so I don't assume that when I see Jesus Christ, Savior and God, that that word God means the Father. I assume that in context, it ties back to being Jesus. Same thing yeah, with but, the Logos. Mm -hmm. But do you, do you, do you, do, are you, do you believe any of the New Testament verses that, that mention this title God, uh, equate uh, the, the, the title God with the Trinity? If, does that make sense? Not, I I don't... not that, you, yeah. So, so for instance, if we, if we read, um, well, are you aware of any instances in the New Testament where the title God refers to the Trinity? Like all three persons at the same time? Correct, yes. No, I would say that there are verses like, for example, the very end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, where it says the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the grace of mm -hmm. our Lord Jesus Christ. You have three distinct persons there that are listed. Um, Peter's mm -hmm. introduction, you have the three persons. So just because just because you see the title or the name God, it's not loaded with, it automatically means all three persons at that time loaded into that word. Context has to dictate um, mm -hmm. what we're talking about. So feel, theologically, I believe that there is one God in essence or substance or being, mm. and within that one yeah. divine eternal God, there exists three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, yeah. the Holy Spirit. Those three persons are co-eternal. Those persons are co-equal, co-powerful. They all share the same essence as God, but yet they're three distinct so persons. Let's, so let's talk about that because that's essentially the crux of the the Trinitarian argument is, and, and is that they all share the same nature um, it, or have the same essence. 
Um, so how do you understand what essence is? What, what is exactly, if, if we were to say, so if we're saying Jesus has the same essence as God, what does that essence consist of? All the attributes of God. Now, obviously, uh-huh. which like can you can you just for can you give can you give a few of them? Okay. So, for example, eternality, omniscience, mm-hmm. omnipresence, omnipotence, all of those attributes are attributed to all three persons of the Trinity ontologically. Now, mm-hmm. in the economic Trinity, where Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, made himself in the form of a, of, a, of a servant coming in human likeness in the incarnation, he brought about some limitations by being confined to time and space. Obviously, he was not omnipresent when he was on earth, but he had omniscience. He could read people's minds. He was omnipotent. He could perform miracles and raise people from the dead. And so, just because in the incarnation there are some limitations of Jesus being fully man and fully God doesn't mean that he ceased to be fully God. All right. Can you show a single place in the New Testament where, so we're making the claim, um, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to just atta- attack and argue. I'm just walking us through the reasoning process of how I would, how I would think, how I think about it and how I came to my conclusion. Um, so if we say that Jesus has equal power with God, um, uh, it's kind of a two-part question because we do see in the New Testament that at some point Jesus says, I have been given authority. And and so there seems to be at least an absence of when he had power. Um, at, you know, For instance, he gave up power, then didn't have it, but then it was given back to him in some way. But let, let's just stick with one now. We'll talk about the... Uh, the eternality that you believe Jesus had with God, are you able to find a single place in the New Testament where Jesus has power equal equal to God? Yeah, that re- the Revelation chapter I showed you, he's he's being worshipped with equal power and honor and glory as God. He he who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be power, glory, honor. Um, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, has power to raise life. Uh, Jesus mm-hmm. created all things, so he is. First Corinthians, I'm not for First Corinthians, Colossians one fifteen says, "Through him all things hold together. Through him all things were made." So he was there in creation, creating the world, the universe. That's the same power as God. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of places yep. where Jesus has equal power with God. But I don't think any of those verses speak to power. Uh, maybe we misunderstand each other about what we mean uh, by power. Um, but we do see Jesus, for instance, uh, Jesus says, I did not come to do my will, uh, but I came to do the will of him who sent me. We see, um, uh, well, the, the simple fact that Jesus has a God. And so if, if we if we say that one of the, the qualities that God has is supreme power, and Jesus has a God, if Jesus has a God, then the implication there is that Jesus has someone who is in power over him. I, I wouldn't say Jesus has a God. I said Jesus has a father. 
Revelation three twelve. Well, Revelation, can you turn to Revelation three twelve? Sure. Um, because because uh, I, I because I'm interested to see um, if you th don't think that Jesus has a God, I'm interested to see how you explain um, him saying that he has a God or referring to someone as my God um, uh, four times in this verse. Yeah, it would be the same way I see that. Never shall he go out of it and write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. Um, yes, I mean, my God. Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, Jesus, you could say Jesus has a God in the sense that it's his father. But when I say that Jesus has God as his father, I do not believe that Jesus is subordinate ontologically to God the Father, or that he was adopted by God the Father sometime at his baptism, but that Jesus has always existed. And I go back to, let's go back to John 1.1. 1, 1. Let's just look at the Greek text. In the beginning was, okay, Hain was. That is an imperfect tense verb, which means continuous action in the past. So for example, um, I could say, I was at the store yesterday, or I was excited to see the Broncos win this week. Um, but all those are past tense, simple actions. There was a time when I wasn't at the store, I went to the store. There was a time when the Broncos weren't playing, then they played, and they won, and I got excited. But the imperfect verb that John uses in John 1.1 is purposeful in that it's continuous action, showing that Jesus has always existed as God, as God. And so we have to be very careful that it says he existed as God. Now, John could have used an adjective that Jesus existed as divine. And that could have been his way of saying, well, the Logos was quasi-divine. He was divine-like. He, was, he pointed us to God, but not fully God. But John doesn't well, use that adjective that he could have used. He, he, he could have used divine well, he, nature, he, divine power. He, he uses well, he does. theos. Yes, which and, but shows he does, that, he, he does uh, lack the article in John 1, uh, 1c. And so, so, so I guess, I, I mean, so... Uh, which which ties into his whole theme about the word God and people can be called gods and uh, and but he refers to his father as the only true God. So I guess in John one one C, uh, you, how, how do you understand the use of, of theos there? Because we wouldn't say something like uh, in the beginning was a boat and the boat was on water and and the boat was water. Um, and, and so no, what what, it's, what John does in that passage is he he affirms two distinct truths. He shows us two, two truths that are very important to Trinitarian theology. Number one, there are two distinct persons. There's God the Father, and there's Jesus the Logos the Son. They are two distinct persons because that pros preposition, Jesus was with, or the Logos was with God. Now, unless they're the same person, you can't, I can't say I was with myself yesterday. You have to be with another person. So that preposition pros shows that there are two distinct persons with each other. 
And then the second truth that it shows us is not only are those two distinct persons, but those two distinct persons, the Father and the Son, i.e. the Logos, both have always existed as God. Right. Yeah. So, well, what, what, then, you, then what, what would it, if, if that is a reference to Jesus, the Logos, it is a reference to you, Jesus because what, what, well, it's not. It's well, we disagree. But what I'm saying, if we're just speaking hypothetically, theoretically here, if it is indeed true that the logos is a reference to Jesus, what do you think it means for Jesus to be called the logos? What, why would because he doesn't say in the beginning was a son, and he doesn't say in the beginning was Jesus. He says in the beginning be was the logos. So what is the significance of right. using that? Right. Word logos. There. Right. It, it, it ties back to how God has always done things going all the way back to the Old Testament. God is a speaking God. Okay. So God from the very beginning has spoken. He spoke creation into existence. He spoke through the prophets. Um, he, he's a speaking God. And so God's word is equal to God himself. So, um, for example, when... Um, you hear the prophets say, thus saith the Lord, and they speak. It's almost as if in the Old Testament, God's word is equated with God himself because he created, it's called, it kind of like it's called speech action. What God says actually comes to be in action. It's so tied together. And who, and so, who, who is God there? Yeah, so, so just because the, you say God speaks, who is God there? Is that a trinity or one person? The Father. The Father. Okay, so spoke one person. In the Old okay, so the Father is God there. So, okay. In the Old so. Testament, God, in the Old Testament, Elohim, Yahweh, God, the Father. Now, we have progressive revelation when we go through the New Testament and we understand more of this. But if you go back to John chapter one, let's just go there real quick because it's very important. Let me just kind of finish my flow of thought, then you can ask me my next question. But um, in John chapter one, it, it ha Jesus has to be the Logos who is God, because in verse 14, it says the Logos became flesh. That's definitely talking about Jesus being God in the flesh, coming in the incarnation, being the true light. And then if you look at verse 18, verse 18 is the end of the prologue. And it's very interesting how John ties that whole idea of Logos idea. No one has ever seen God, the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, there's a textual variant there that some people can debate about. But when it says that Jesus has made him known, that Greek word means to exegete. Jesus has Jesus coming in the flesh, exegetes, explains is the full deity of God in the flesh. So everything you need to know about God, Jesus has come in the flesh to exegete, to explain, because the Father is the invisible God that no one has seen. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. They're two distinct persons, but yet they share the same essence as God. The Father is God. Jesus is God. Jesus makes known the Father who's invisible as the visible expression of the invisible God. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so is Jesus the invisible God? No. Jesus yeah. is God, but he's not the invisible God. Okay. He has a physical body. He's in heaven right now, sit, seated at the right hand of the Father with nail scars in his hands and feet. 
in, a, in, in his resurrected, glorified body. Mm -hmm. But he's not, he's the, not invisible the invisible God. God. So, no, okay, so, okay, so if, 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 if he's not the invisible God and he's the visible representation of the invisible God, how does he visibly represent the invisible God? What, what is it about Jesus that, um, that makes him the visible representation of God? We see in the Gospel of John, for instance, Jesus says that these words that I'm speaking, not mine. Uh, I, I, I don't, you know, actually, when you see me, you haven't seen, you've actually just seen the father. And in that verse, he says that no one has ever seen God. And, right. and so, and, and so that the implication so, there is that Jesus is not God because no one has yeah, ever seen God. It doesn't say no one has ever seen the father. It says no one has ever seen God. That's a whole complete right. God there. Right. So you're, you're inferring that Jesus representing God means that Jesus is somehow inferior or subordinate to God and is not eternal. Jesus well, coming how... in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me just put it, let me, let me make it very easy. Jesus has always been full deity. When he became human, nothing subtracted from his deity. He just added humanity to who he already was as fully divine. And so mm -hmm. he is fully God and fully man, or as the confessions and creeds say, true God, or truly God, or entirely God, and entirely man. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have a problem with the Father being invisible. Revelation 4, seated on his throne, no man can see him. He, he, he dwells in unapproachable light. And then in the next chapter, have Jesus being the resurrected Christ, the Lamb of God, who is also seated on the throne, showing equality with God, and that both of them, two distinct persons, are worshipped equally as God with all power, glory, honor, and dominion, and being both eternal. One being invisible, the Father, same as the Spirit, and Jesus being visible or with the body, and, and, and having three distinct persons, but all sharing the same essence as fully divine in God. All right. Um, let's let's just talk a little bit about, about Philippians. I know that's two minutes is not enough to talk about Philippians, but it, it says that Jesus existed in the form of God. How do you understand that word morphe, uh, especially uh, with the under, the continuing theme here that God is invisible, as nobody has ever seen Him? So how how do you understand that word uh, morphe? How do you, and how do you come to your conclusion? Yeah, I would just say that that word means that he is, again, the visible expression of an invisible God. That in the incarnation, Jesus came in the flesh to reveal to us all the fullness of deity in bodily form, as Colossians 2.9 says. That in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not the divine nature, but the fullness of deity and so Jesus is the fullness of deity, always existing in heaven as fully God, voluntarily gave up those rights and privileges temporarily to come to earth as a servant and to die on the cross, then to be exalted at the right hand of the Father. How do you understand the word harpe? Uh, I'm sorry, you cut out. Uh, how do you understand the word most there for, uh, for didn't it consist? with God something to be grasped as being exploited uh, do you agree with that I'm sorry you cut out on me I didn't I didn't hear the full question 
Oh, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Uh, that word heartbag most says that, that he did not consolidate with God something to be exploited. Uh, how do you understand that word exploited there? I mean, the heart, the word heartbag most. I'm sorry, I'm still having a hard time, and I think our time's up. I, I didn't quite hear the question. Something about mm. from Philippians two about something to be grasped or did not did not count equality of God something to be grasped or or hung on to. Yeah, I mean, how do you understand the word heartbag most there? Uh, because uh, I would think because uh, now uh, uh, commentators and, and scholars will say that that word most likely means exploited. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how, how could God exploit his own nature? It seems that God could do whatever he wants to do. Um, so how, how could God exploit his own power? That's that seems like something God couldn't do. Yeah, I don't I don't see that as exploited. I just see that what Paul's doing there in the and in Christie that him to Christ is God is he is doing two things. He's he's giving an example to the Philippians of how to be humble and how to be um, there's no divisions in the church and to make his joy complete by being humble, not being conceited. And he uses this hymn to show how Jesus is an example of that. But he also teaches a theology, a high Christology. And so I think what he's showing there is that Jesus voluntarily gave up rights that were his, that he could have held on to as God, but purposely gave those up in order to come and serve. And it wasn't having anything to do with exploiting. It's it's a voluntary giving up of those rights and privileges in the incarnation to come in the limited form as a man, but still being fully God in the flesh. All right, all right. Thank you guys for that cross sex. Appreciate the the decorum you guys are sharing here, and uh, the audience definitely appreciate it as well. So now we're going to transition to our closing remarks, and there'll be five minute closings. And audience, uh, make sure you get some questions in. Uh, I see a bunch of questions in, coming in for Andrew, but I do want to sort of level out, and even out the Q and A. So if you guys get some questions in for Sean as well, it'd be much appreciated. Uh, that said, Dr. Sean, you're up for your five minute closing. And I will start your oh. five minutes, your five minute timer when you begin to speak. Um, yeah, let me. I'm prepared for the closing yet, but let me. Um, give me just one minute here. I really want to close with more of a pastoral implication i mean we've talked a lot of theology we've talked about some things that are um you know very important but one of the things that i would just say is that um there's some implications to this that jesus has to be fully god in the flesh and here's some reasons why only god in the flesh could obey the law perfectly in thought word and deed um a mere man could not do this, even an exalted man. And only God in the flesh could offer a perfect sacrifice on the cross of the eternal and infinite value. And only God in the flesh could bear the curse of the law and propitiate God's wrath. And so it really comes down to saving faith requires trust in Jesus as God. And I would just say, if we abandon the deity of Christ, we lose the gospel. And the deity of Christ gives us tremendous security that we'll be eternally saved and never lost. I mean, Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 31, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, 
They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So I often tell my congregation when it comes to the doctrine of eternal security, you're in the double grip. You're in the grip of the Father. You're in the grip of the Son. And, and no one can snatch you out of that double grip of the Father who is God and Jesus who is God that are holding you eternally secure. And, and so these truths about the deity of, of Christ should produce some things in us. I mean, first of all, they should inform your mind to know Jesus more accurately. I mean, we want to have our minds filled with accurate theology. We don't want to worship Jesus in the wrong way or, or be guilty of worshiping a false Jesus. So it's important that our, our minds are informed by the true Jesus. But second, we want these truths to inflame our hearts, to worship Jesus more passionately. Um, yes, we want this knowledge to impact our minds, but it really should impact our hearts to know that since Jesus is fully God, it drives us to worship him just like we see in that Revelation passage to um, the Lamb who's on the throne. And then third, they should influence our wills to obey Jesus more consistently. I mean, we can have our minds filled with correct theology. Uh, we can even have a passionate worship of Jesus in our hearts. But if it doesn't translate into obedience with our wills and our lives, where we consistently follow and serve him, then we're not really being all that God's called us to be. So they, these truths should really impact the core of your being. And it's, it's interesting because what's the greatest commandment? The most important is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so that is how we worship God rightly. And if Jesus is fully God, then we are to worship Jesus with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Jesus is the fullness of God, the living word, the eternal son of God, and he, and he shows us who God is. And so I, I just want to begin with that famous quote from C.S. Lewis um, in his book, Mere Christianity. He has famously said this. He said, there's some people that say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis goes on to say, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a man or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So may our minds be informed to know Jesus more accurately, our hearts inflamed to know him more passionately, our wills to be influenced to know him more consistently. And as we start this Christmas season, what better time than to bow and worship to Jesus, who is the great I am. And let us confess with Thomas to Jesus, my Lord and my God. All right. Thank you, Dr. Chow, for that closing. Andrew, you're up next for your five-minute closing. And I will start your time uh, when you begin to speak. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Marlon, for setting this up and hosting. And uh, thank you, Dr. Sean, for your presentation. 
I have to start by saying that quote from C.S. Lewis is one of the sickest things I've ever heard in my life. I think it's non-Christian. It's not making an argument. It's an emotional and sentimental uh, 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 statement. It's not based in scripture. It's a, it's more of an apologetic, emotional, irrational, and and really an evil and non-Christian thing to say. Um, but I'll start uh, summarizing um, some interesting things were said here tonight. Um, number one, it was admitted by Dr. Sean, and I think it has to be admitted from everybody that Jesus is not the invisible God. The invisible God is presented as a person throughout the whole Bible who is the God of Jesus. Um, it says that in the in the New Testament that Jesus is the image of that invisible God. That's a, a whole complete God right there. Uh, it doesn't say the invisible person. It says the invisible God. That's a whole incomplete God. Um, and... Um, and Jesus represents that God. That's what it means in when in Colossians 1.15, when it says Jesus is the visible uh, uh, representation, that he's the image of the invisible God. Those two terms are, con are, are, are contrasting each other. You have something which is invisible and something which makes that invisible thing known. And this, what is being known through Jesus is the invisible God. And it's not an invisible trinity. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Another interesting thing he says is that, that God is a speaking God. So we go back to Genesis 1 and we say, in the beginning, God created. And following even Trinitarian scholar Murray Harris's um, uh, 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 research, he says that that can only refer to one person. So, for instance, when we go back to Genesis 1, we would say something like, in the beginning, the Father created the heavens and the earth. The Father is the invisible God. Um, and, and so if, if he's a speaking God, well, what does it mean that, that Jesus is the Word? I think all of that just gets muddled up and lost when, we keep, when it's constantly just asserted by Trinitarians, well, Jesus is God. He has the full essence of God. He's there. And it's a very robotic, dry, uh, and, and unsound thing. It doesn't really tell us much. It's just asserting information. It's not hermeneutically explaining the Bible in a way that is substantial to our life. And if we can't do that, I don't know why uh, we even bother, to be honest with you. Um, and I don't know what the intention of the Bible is if it's not to... Um, provide you with wisdom and insight uh, about how to um, live your life and what and what our purpose is here um, as human beings. Um, uh, the, I didn't see anything which says shows that Jesus has power um, equal to the Father's. Uh, it was said that that Jesus, well, he's worshipped alongside God, but again, we see in First Chronicles twenty nine twenty, there's one verb of worship. And two direct objects, God and the human Messiah, which would have been Solomon. And, and so that doesn't show equal power, but all throughout the Bible, we see that God, the God of Jesus, is more powerful than him. And we see Jesus as someone who is subordinate to them. We see in uh, John 3.34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
He who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to you. I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. When you see me, you've actually seen the Father, because Jesus expresses the invisible God. Jesus is not the invisible God. I think that that being admitted is is uh, completely detrimental to the Trinitarian argument. Um, and another thing that I've heard now in two debates is that Jesus doesn't have a God or doesn't have someone who is his God. So then who's the liar, the Unitarian or Jesus? Jesus says clearly and abundantly all throughout the Bible, my God, he's saying he has a God. He has someone who is his God. And so C.S. Lewis, who is the liar here? All right. All right. Thank you guys once again for a fantastic debate. And uh, we are very appreciative of you guys' efforts. And so now we are going to transition to the, the Q&A. This will be a 30-minute Q&A. Both of you guys will get one minute each to respond to the question. Um, and uh, this the, the interacting with each other has now expired. So now you guys are just dealing with the questions from the audience. So let's Take a look at some of these questions here. This is a question for you, Andrew. Yeah, shit popped up on the bottom of the screen, having a hard time. All right, question for Griffin. Uh, if the Father is the alone God before creation, then who is the Father a Father to without the Son? That's a great question. Um, and it's one that I, one of the early church fathers actually said that there actually was a time when God was not a Father. And so we now call God the Father. We now call him the Father. He, this is something that he became. And we also see of Jesus, today I have begotten you. And, and, um, and, and so a lot of it depends on how we understand time. And we understand what the Logos is. And we understand that. Uh, you know, wisdom is wisdom said of herself in her autobiography that God brought me forth before the foundation of the world. And so this logos that was actually with Jesus, but uh, God became a father at some point. Um, at one point, he was not. We now call him the father, but he has not always been the father. All right, Dr. Sean. Am I answering the same question? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if it was a different question. Um, that that's that's a disturbing thought to think that there's some type of ontological change in God to where he wasn't something and then he becomes something. Um, there's a whole doctrine of simplicity, aseity, um, eternality there by arguing that God became something that he wasn't before. Um, so God has always eternally been the Father. Jesus has always eternally been the Son. The Holy Spirit's always eternally been the Spirit. Um, I think we get into dangerous waters when we say God wasn't something and then he became something um, that shows there's some type of change in God that I don't think the scripture affords. Um, now, the understanding of God the Father in the redemptive history is more um, given fullness when we come to the New Testament, when Jesus comes in the flesh and relates to God as his Father. We don't have a lot out of the language in the Old Testament, there's a few places in Genesis and in um, Isaiah where God is referred to as a father, especially to the nation of Israel. Um, so just because the Old Testament doesn't refer to God 
with the name Father doesn't mean that he hasn't always existed as Father. In redemptive history and in the fuller revelation, when Jesus comes in the flesh, we have a better understanding of who God has always been. All right, all right. And here is a question for both of you guys here. Question for both. In Colossians 1, we are told that Jesus created all things. Where was Jesus dwelling prior to the creation of the heavens and earth? Isn't that which is outside of creation eternal? Uh, Dr. Sean, you want to tackle this one first? first? Yes, Jesus did create all things. Where was Jesus dwelling? He was in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. Wherever that was, um, you know, we, we call it heaven, um, outside of time, eternal. And so, yes, Jesus was eternally in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Son before all things were created. Where that is spatially, where that is in time and space, that's above my pay grade, but they all three eternally dwelt together in perfect unity before the creation of the world. All right, uh, Andrew? Oh uh, yeah, so this is this is a multifaceted uh, problem that we have here. Uh, one, it, it doesn't say that Jesus created all things. It says that all things were created through Jesus. Um, and uh, uh, number one, this text, just to be uh, for the sake of time, Jesus is presented as the embodiment of wisdom. Um, and so it's it's more about the principles and the truths that are found in Jesus, which all things have been created through. Um, but uh, and then the second part is it, a lot of it depends on how you understand time. Uh, so so again, how do you understand time? Is is it's time? If there was a succession of events prior to the creation of the the uh, the movement of the solar system, essentially, which is how we understand time by days and the, how many times the sun goes around the earth and things like that. If there was a succession of events. Uh, prior to the creation of time as we know it, then there, there must have been some sort of, sort of time. Um, so all things were created through Jesus. Uh, Jesus was the embodiment of wisdom. This is why Paul could say some, something like uh, ascending up, that is to bring Christ down. Uh, these, this is a reference to the Targums, which refers to the Torah, which refers to a certain amount of teaching. So all the, all the things were created through the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. All right. And Andrew, here is a question for you. It says, why does John say that when Isaiah saw the glory of Yahweh, he was actually seeing the glory of Jesus? See John 12, 41 and Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. Doesn't this mean that Jesus is Yahweh? Well, that's interesting because Yahweh, if we follow the first premise in what I argue is that Yahweh can... Uh, it can only be a, re a reference to one person. So if someone says, I saw Yahweh, that can only be a reference to one person. Um, my personal belief is that there's, it's, 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 there's two things that we have to take in consideration. When we see in John, it says that these things were written, uh, uh, and it's talking about the, the suffering servant, and, and which is somebody who is distinct from God. But I also think that there's an aspect of, of Logos Christology we have to understand. And also, it could have been that um, John interpreted this Old Testament passage um, as, as, as seeing Jesus in, in a future state uh, being exalted as, as king. That's sort of a prophetic thing. All right, uh, Dr. Shah? So if God the Father 
is invisible and no one has seen him, who did Isaiah see on the throne with the robe unless it was a pre-incarnate Christ? And so, yes, I agree that in John 12, 41, Jesus did, I mean, John does say that Isaiah saw Jesus as Yahweh. And I think we're getting confused with the title and um, personages. Um, just because I think Andrew keeps saying that only one person can have the title Yahweh. My argument back to the I am is that Yahweh, who approached in the Old Testament, the great I am, Jesus uses that same title or name to apply to himself, thus equating himself with the Father as a distinct person, but still fully sharing the deity as, as God. So I would agree with, um, is it Fred, that Jesus is Yahweh, whom Isaiah did see in the temple. All right, all right. And here is a question for Sean. All right. Uh, this is uh, Mr. Tyler Vila. What's up, buddy? How you doing? Uh, Sean, are you familiar with Kirk's book, A Man Attested by God, where he shows that the Second Temple Judaism commonly used Yahweh language of selected men like Moses? Is that my is that my is that my friend Tyler Vela that's asking that question? Yeah, yeah that's Mr. I Tyler. To, okay, I haven't talked to Tyler in a long time. He's, he was a former debate partner with me, so. Good, good to hear from you, Tyler. Is that is that a trick question? Are you familiar? No, I'm not familiar with Kirk's, Kirk's book, A Man Attested by God. Um, I haven't read that, so maybe I should. But thanks for the recommendation, Tyler. I, I plead ignorance on that book. I haven't read it. All right. Uh, Andrew, any thoughts? Yeah, I have a copy, and it's a great book. And I think that all, all Trinitarians and all Christians uh, well, serious students of the Bible should own a copy of this book, and it shows that there's a there's a great amount of exalted language that is given to other human beings. And so, if if a Trinitarian makes an argument like, "Well, here's this verse that was about Yahweh, and well, now we see it about Jesus, therefore Jesus Yahweh," is debunked when we understand that Jewish writers at that time took Yahweh text and applied it to other human beings. And so it casts down that argument. It debunks it. It shows how it's not logically or biblically sound. Uh, I, I highly recommend that book. In fact, the, the quote from Margaret Barker that I, I quoted was actually, I found that in his book. And so it's a great book. I highly recommend it. All right. All right. Uh, and here is a question for, for both you guys here. Uh, Andrew, if you want to tackle this one first. Uh, who is the word of God in Revelations 19, 11 through 13? Uh, that, that's a good one. Um, um, so uh, another interesting thing, uh, I, I wish I had a notes because I, I wrote I wrote uh, I wrote a post about this, this first and uh, something that we see in the, the intertestament literature is that God's word leapt down off its throne. And the, the, the event which is describing is actually when the destroying angel went down and destroyed things uh, for the Passover. And so it equates there the word of God with the destroying angel. And, and so we have to remember that Jesus being called the word of God, uh, Jesus spoke the words of God. He is the revelation of God. Uh, 
and so it, it, it's speaking about these words, which are, you know, he embodies. And I think even G.K. Beale noted that the reason that he's called Word of God there is because he embodies these various truths uh, about God. All right. Uh, Dr. Shai. Yeah, simple answer. Who's the Word of God in Revelation 19? Jesus. Jesus coming back in his second coming. All right, all right. I don't know if, they're, if uh, they want more than that. <laughs> All right, all right. And here is a question for you, Sean. It says, for Sean, are you suggesting that one of the persons of the Trinity as a human has a human nature? Are you suggesting that one person within one God has something the other two persons do not have forever? Yes. If, yeah, Jesus has a human nature when he came in the flesh. He's the only person of the Trinity that came in the flesh. The Father didn't come in the flesh. The Spirit didn't come in the flesh. Those two are spirit. And now as the exalted Christ, he does have a human nature, although fully God and fully man forever in heaven as the exalted Christ. All right, uh, Andrew. Yes, interesting, um, two things, uh, one there, is because uh, Dr. Sean uh, misrepresented my view. I'm not saying he did it intentionally at all. I think he just doesn't understand where I'm coming from. Maybe he's never heard it, but somehow had the idea that because God produced wisdom or produced the logos, that somehow made a change within God. And that's not correct. We know from the Bible that God can produce things which are outside of himself. This is how creation came to be. Um, but, but, you know, concerning this, especially it's, uh, you know, it's, one, how is it one person of the Trinity became flesh, yet all of God is uh, is is now uh, a human being. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of presuppositional things which go into that. You can ask Matt Slick. You could talk about the communicado in the amatum or whatever he's talking about and all the perichoresis and all these just things that uh, stem from uh, presuppositions and unsound biblical exegesis. But it, it is it is it, the one thing that spawned everything that I understand about the Bible today is understanding that only the logos became flesh. So what is the logos? All right. All right. And here's a question for, where's it at? For you, Andrew, who are the us and are, and let us make man in our image. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, a good question. Uh, but again, when we go back to Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created, uh, even following Trinitarian scholar Mary Harris's, and you make up your mind what you believe, in the beginning, God created can only refer to one person. Right after it says about us and our language, it says that then God made it man in his image, this one person's image. So, so one thing we have to understand is what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be an image bearer? And again, when we follow that, it means that you're a representation. Jesus is a representation of God. He's not the invisible God. He's not the God of Genesis 1. 1. He's, uh, and, and so the, 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 two, to the two Unitarian schools of thought there are that it's either a, a plural of majesty or it's a, an announcement to the angelic host um, where God essentially, uh, other instances in, in the Bible where it says, let us go down there and confuse their tongues. Uh, but you have to read into the text that it refers to a trinity or that Jesus was somehow there. 
Uh, this is not something we see in the, in the New Testament about Jesus being there making man. Uh, in fact, Jesus credits his Father and God with the creation of man and the world. All right, uh, Dr. Shai? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a different schools of thought. I mean, there's the angelic um, announcement. Um, now, I, I take it theologically that it is a veiled reference to the Trinity. And I see that God, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, it talks about the Holy Spirit being there, hovering over the waters. And then you've got New Testament to fill in the gaps that Jesus was there. So I believe if you take the fullness of the revelation of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, all three persons were involved in creation. And if God is going to make man in an image, then it has to reflect in some way the perfect man, Jesus. And so there has to be some reference to the second person of the Trinity in the image of God because Jesus did come as fully God and fully man. So while not explicit, I think if you take the whole teaching of Scripture, you can be safe to say that the us there um, theologically is related to the Trinity. Take the entire Scripture together. All right, all right. And here's a question for you, Sean. It says, uh, what point or argument made by Andrew does, does Sean consider the strongest? Okay, let me go back and look at his premises here. I guess maybe the one that he kept um, repeating that, I, that maybe I, I didn't fully give an answer to would be his premise number three, that for some reason, um, not that I agree with him, but maybe the point would be that Jesus is not as powerful quantitatively as God the Father um, while I disagree with it, you know, that may be a point that provides some reflection or provides me to do a little bit more research. Okay. Uh, Andrew, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll continue off there and I talk about how awesome my point was. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> um, um, it is it is something worth considering. Um, and then it gets into the whole, whole argument about, well, is there an eternal subordination of Jesus? And, and, and then it, that kind of turns into a heresy, right? You can't have one who's more powerful than the other. And so these, these are the type of questions which led me to understand the Bible as I understand it today, which I believe is, is perfectly sound and, and a powerful way of explaining the Bible um, as God intended. Um, but yeah, that, that power thing, that, um, you, know, you have to really ask yourself is Jesus says, the reason I came is because I, I was sent by God, which implies subordination, to do his will, to do somebody else's will. And so the power thing is something I would encourage everybody. And I, I really do think it has to be answered. And there's a lot of back and forth that's going to come from that. Well, you know, Philippians 2 and things like that. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, I don't think I don't think that I think that's an uh, insurmountable obstacle for the idea that Jesus is equally powerful, uh, which would be the only way he could be correctly identified as God. Can I take a point of personal privilege and just ask a quick question? I know there's questions from the audience, but this may be helpful. And, and, and if, if not, Marlon, if, if you don't want me to, I can I can defer that. Andrew, do you mind? No, I don't mind. So this is a, this is a personal worship question, and I think it would be helpful for the audience 
when you think about worshiping Jesus, adoring him, submitting your life to him, what does that look like if he's not fully God? How do you, your devotional worship life, let's, let's take theology out of it. Let's talk about your personal worship of Jesus. What does that look like? And that's a, that's a good question. Um, and it's something I struggle with a, a lot um, because when I, when I was saved and God radically transformed my life, I was one, I believed Jesus was God. And so I said, you know, and I worshiped him as such. And the power of Jesus to transform lives is undeniable. It's what motivates me. It's what uh, makes it where I can't shake this. I can't stop. Um, you, you know, it's, it's just made a, a, you know, an undeniable impact. Um, and so sometimes worship songs go a little bit too far. Um, but I, I like songs like You Were the Word in the Beginning. One with God, the Lord Most High. Well, I understand that that it's the truths that He embodied that, that are found in the person of Jesus. So He's both the messenger and the message, and so I don't really have a problem with that. I think when people do talk about worship, we have a way that we worship now that's different than they did in biblical times. There was simply a prostration that took place back in the day. Now we have these certain songs, which are you know. Some of them call Jesus Yahweh. Some of them are consistent with biblical Unitarian theology. Um, but I always make sure that God is God is my object of worship. I have no problem praying to Jesus, calling on Jesus for help. I love Jesus. And you know what? To be honest, in, in my heart, I bow down. I worship to Jesus. I, I can't I can't deny that. I just don't worship him as as the living God. I never in, in my praise am I like, thank you, Jesus you know, creator of heaven and earth. I don't say things like that, uh, but I do see him as, as my Lord and savior. And uh, yeah. Uh, does that answer what you were trying to no. ask? Uh, no, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. I, I appreciate your honesty there. I appreciate you, you sharing your heart. Sure. All right. All right. Uh, we have some questions. Another question here. Uh, this is for you, Andrew. And John twenty twenty eight, Thomas uses this in direct address to Jesus. Um, also, the Father is never the subject in John twenty. On what basis, exegetically, do you deny Jesus full deity? Hmm. Well, I, I kind of want to see that. Um, I, I, I don't think number one are something that is created. There's no, there's no chapters in, in the Bible, as far as I'm aware. Um, and, and so we have to look at the whole book, the book as a whole. You know, hermeneutics goes, goes in, in, you know, from the target text outwards to the, from the target text to the verse, to the passage, to the, to the book, to the overall book, to the cultural and historical context. Um, and, and so I, 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 don't, I don't see, there's two things. I, I don't, number one, being called God doesn't make you the Lord God Almighty. Um, I, I I agree that it's a very provocative thing. I, I'm I'm not I'm not denying that. Like like it's just some minor thing. It's not the whole book of uh, Gospel of John is very provocative. Jesus says very provocative things, which are meant to provoke. Uh, but also the Gospel of John is training us to think in a certain way to not accept things on a superficial level. Um, uh, but 
I don't see how I don't see how Jesus simply resurrecting from the dead that all of a sudden the narrative would shift. Jesus is like, I'm ascending to my God and you're a God and God's the only true God and my father sent me and he's greater than me. Then all of a sudden, all Jesus does, as great as it was, is resurrect. And all of a sudden, Thomas is like, you're you're my Lord and you're and you're my God. That's an interesting that's it just. I can't make the pieces add up. And uh, when we have something like seeing it polemically against the emperor Domitian, who demanded that people call him my Lord and my God, the direct contrast is between emperors who are representatives of their God. All right. All right. Uh, Dr. Sean. Yeah, it's a fascinating passage because Thomas is, is hardened in his unbelief. I mean, he wasn't there when Jesus showed up the first time and the original language is Thomas is like, I will never believe unless you show me like it's this intransigent. I'm never going to believe this. And then Jesus shows him in an act of grace. And then, you know, as a Calvinist, I obviously believe God did a supernatural work there to open Thomas's eyes to truth. And that's why the, the, the script flipped or whatever the, the, the flip, the switch is that he, he sees with spiritual eyes that Jesus before him is both Lord and God. And, it, and it's a visceral response. I, whether it's a, I don't know if it's a polemic response to the, to the emperor. Um, I don't think in that moment, Thomas is thinking, ah, oh, I'm equating Jesus with the emperor. I think it's, I see Jesus in front of me, this man whom I'm followed for three years, he's resurrected from the grave. He is my Lord and he is my God. Now, secondarily, John, when he writes it to his Hellenistic audience at the time, there is that understanding that his audience would understand the Domitian, you know, understanding of that. But I think in the original words that Thomas confesses to Jesus, it, it's a life transformed by seeing the resurrected Christ right in front of him. And that's the strongest confession, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't call me God. There's only one living God. It's, you know, there's my God. It's not me. He receives the worship as God and does not deny that. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, and here's a question for you, Andrew. Um, if Psalm 102 is applied to God directly, but in Hebrews 1, God the Father applies to Jesus, how could mm. Jesus not be God? Well, I would, I would say I'm looking for a debate. Someone someone wants to debate Hebrews. Someone wants to debate Colossians. I'm looking for it. But thing we have to understand, and I may be talking about the wrong the wrong text here, um, but I, I think this is the one where it says you laid the foundation. Um, one thing we have to understand about, about New Testament authors is that they will use Old Testament passages in a way which the 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 original author probably didn't intend um also we see in psalm 102 one thing you have to look into is the variant that happens when we get to the septuagint version of psalm 102 so there's a difference so often in the septuagint we see that words are switched up characters are switched up we see things being changed and go check out uh, isaiah 9 6 as a perfect example of this, compare the Hebrew text with the Septuagint, and you'll see, um, and, and also with Psalm 102, that it switches the characters. At first it's talking to God, but when you get to the Septuagint, it, it shows that it's actually talking to a person. Uh, and we also see in Isaiah, 
where it where God is speaking to the human Messiah says, I have given you my word so that you may establish the heavens and the earth, speaking about the new creation, which is the context the author of Hebrews tells us uh, he's writing about in explicitly in Hebrews 2 5 when he's speaking about the world to come, which is the subject matter of this letter. All right, uh, Dr. Sean. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look at that passage of Scripture, but I often know that a lot of times in Hebrews, when the author, and we don't know who the author is, quotes the Psalms especially, he equates those Psalms that speak of God, and he equates those to Jesus. And so he's purposely quoting Old Testament passages that refer to God and giving them to Jesus, because the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to prove to the Jewish people those Jewish Christians that were wanting to fall back into Judaism, back into the sacrificial system, the whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior to all of those old things. And one of the arguments all through Hebrews is that Jesus is not only superior to the Old Testament types and shadows, but that he is God to be worshipped. And a lot of those Old Testament um, texts that are brought into to Hebrews, the, the author interprets those as equating to Jesus. All right. And here's the question for you, uh, Dr. Sean. Uh, it's coming from Tyler again. A sanity is an incommunicable attribute of God. If the Son is monogamous of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from both, how are they not, I say, if they need another person to exist? Oh, Tyler, you're throwing me a, a, a curveball here. So, yes, aseity is an incommunicable attribute of God. And you, Oh, yeah. This, okay, the Son is, so monogamous means only begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. That language of procession and begotten do not impact the eternality of those persons it speaks more of relationship than it does of ontological existence. And so I don't think that they need the other person to exist. It's speaking more in filial or family language than it is in ontological reality. So the son is begotten doesn't mean that he came into existence and he wasn't before, or that the spirit proceeds in the sense that he came into existence but wasn't before. These are ways to theologically speak about relationships between the three persons of the Trinity. Um, a pretty complicated question to answer in, in a couple of minutes, but um, yeah, that's a good question, Tyler. All right, uh, Andrew, any thoughts? Yeah, that is that is a that's a big a big topic. Uh, one one thing I will say is that yeah, I mean. So I, I made it for the argument of, of simplicity here about two things that Jesus is not, uh, what qualities he doesn't possess, and that is being supremely powerful and being the invisible God. Um, but also aseity is something else that Jesus doesn't possess and he can't possess. And so a lot of this, a lot of the, just to get to the heart of the conversation of what we're talking about here, something to think about, is, is the question of how we understand time. That's the whole question about how we understand time. So time is is part of creation. So how do we view time? How do we how do we calculate time? We we do it on the on the movement of the stars and the planets and the sun goes up and the sun goes down and that's how we calculate time. But if God was 
so if, if time didn't exist and God is existing in, in eternity before creation, but God's busy, he's planning things, he's foreordaining things, he's doing things. If God is doing things and there's a succession of events, then some form of time must have existed, which is outside of our comprehension. Nevertheless, the Bible tells us that before anything existed, God founded wisdom. And so this is a particular wisdom which is manifest in creation through which God uh, created everything that exists. But nevertheless, prior to creation, wisdom or the logos was brought forth. And that's the heart of the conversation. And, and he can't be, he, if, if, the, if the son was begotten at some point prior to creation, even before time as we know it existed, then he doesn't have the property of a seity. Therefore, he cannot be, uh, unless you want to define God as, as some other set of qualities, he does not possess all the qualities necessary to call him actually God. All right, and this would be the this would be the final question of the evening here. Uh, question for Andrew: Why does the Father in Hebrews one ten cite Psalms one hundred two and apply it to the Son? Is not Psalms one hundred two referring to Yahweh? Yeah, and we just talked about this, but uh, again. Um, so um, you have to understand the difference. There's, there's two things. Understand the difference. Go compare the Hebrew text of 102 with the Septuagint version of Psalm 102, and you'll see that the referent changes uh, to where God is actually speaking to a person, or at least that's just how the author of Hebrews understood it. And so the text changes from the Hebrew text to the Septuagint, that, and the author of Hebrews quotes the Septuagint, not the Hebrew text. And so, but he says the, the whole, uh, again, going back to Isaiah, when God said he puts the words in this person so that they can establish the heavens and the earth. Well, how is he going to establish the heavens and the earth if, if the heavens and the earth is already established? It's talking about the new creation. And when you go to Hebrews 2, 5, it says that the whole subject matter about what we're talking about is the world that is to come. He's talking about the Messiah. And Dr. Sean was right in that there's these inst religious institutions and uh, and there's even angelic worship and, and all these different systems and showing that Christ is who they were pointing to. And through Christ, God is reordering the cosmos uh, and reconciling it uh, back to himself. So it's the establishment of the new creation, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.5. So compare the Hebrew text with the Septuagint and then read Hebrews 2.5. And uh, also the, the part in Isaiah where it talks about putting the words in this person so he can establish the heavens and the earth. Well, how is he going to establish the heavens and the earth when the heavens and earth was already established? God is, is talking about new creation. All right. Uh, Dr. Sean. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would just go back to the same thing I said earlier about the writer of Hebrews equating a lot of these things. You, so you're looking at Hebrews 1:10. you Lord, the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And you're saying that if you go back and read Psalm 102, 25 through 27, that the Lord there in the Old Testament is Yahweh, and the writer of Hebrews equates that to Jesus the Son in the New Testament, I think is what I'm understanding his question being. That yes, all throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer, and he does use the Septuagint as his source, but the, the question is how does the New Testament writer interpret under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Old Testament texts. It tells us a lot 
and how, and this is a hermeneutical principle, how do the New Testament writers interpret Old Testament text? And so if, an, if, if a New Testament writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit takes an Old Testament text that relates to Yahweh and equates it with Jesus the Son, then he's giving us the interpretive grid and how to understand the fullness of the Bible. And that's a, a spirit-inspired in, um, interpretation from the New Testament writer taking an Old Testament text and bringing it in and applying it to Jesus. Whereas the original Psalm, they would not have understood Jesus as Nazareth as the fulfillment of that. But through progressive revelation, we have the New Testament interpretation of the old with the fullness of Christ come in the flesh. All right. All right. Good stuff, guys. Appreciate your time and your efforts in this debate. I think it turned out very well and it'd definitely be a beneficial, uh, uh, a beneficial tool for further study for not only people that viewed it live, but people that will come afterwards and check it out. So I appreciate you guys for taking time out of your busy schedules to come on. And so with that said, uh, do you guys have any closing words before I let you guys go? Uh, thank you. I think this. I, I think this was a great engagement. Um, very, very uh, uh, peaceful and uh, edifying. I, I know it was for me. Um, I, I, I want to encourage anybody to go to my YouTube channel, Unitarian Apologetics. Check out my video on Philippians two six through eleven, and uh, I think it's a, an undefeatable explanation of this text. I'm also looking for someone that wants to debate Hebrews one and also colossians one and wants to jump deep in those texts um but i, I really appreciate this debate and the spirit of this debate and uh it, it, thank you guys yeah thank you marlon i would say andrew thanks for the engagement um we may wholeheartedly disagree but um i love you as a friend and i'm i'm encouraged by our time together and i forgot to mention at the beginning of the of the debate i do have a podcast called understanding christianity you can find that on apple podcast um, i also have a website seancole.net and so there's probably seven or eight years worth of podcasts and those are i usually do about two or three a week on all different topics but mainly related to reform theology and then a lot of my sermons and, and teachings are on there as well so uh, you can check that out yeah I, uh, I want one of those g3 shirts you had on dr sean i remember uh you were teaching <laughs> yeah. on facebook and i was checking you out and i saw the shirt and i thought like oh man that shirt is so cool so uh i don't know man you might want to put in a word to your g3 buddies and say hey man send marlon uh, a, a, a g3 shirt <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll talk i'll talk to virgil I'll yeah talk to virgil, say, talk, see if talk to virgil tell the boys to send me one <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask him if he can do that. That'd be cool. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. Appreciate you guys, man. You guys are great, man. I appreciate it. And uh, perhaps we'll do this again sometime, man, and be able to uh, interact with this subject matter because talking about Jesus and God and New Testament, that's a hefty, hefty conversation that cannot be surmised in just one debate. So I appreciate you guys, man. You guys take care. Enjoy the rest of the evening. All right.